Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have in your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 50. This is a special milestone in the I Dare You podcast. And if you really think about it, it's just one more great episode. And you're here at a good time because our guest is Julian Vaca. Now, before I tell you about Julian, before I go any further, make sure you're subscribing to this podcast. I don't want you to miss a single episode. And also follow us on Instagram, at I Dare You Pod. There you'll have exclusive content and things you just will not see anywhere else, including video clips of this interview. Now, Julian Vaca. Many of you know Julian. For those of you that do not, he is an actor, he is a writer, and he is a creator also He's an author of a new book called The Memory Index. Now, Julian is a first-generation Mexican-American and a first-generation college graduate. He was a staff writer on season three of PBS's Reconnecting Roots, a nationally broadcast show that drew in millions of viewers over his first two seasons. His writing, it's been everywhere. It's appeared in the Nerd Daily, Writer's Digest, and so many more. He is a Penn Faulkner Writers in School author. He also has extensive background in acting, earning a principal role in CMT's Still the King for two seasons and dozens of other projects. Now, here's what I think you're going to learn from this episode. We talk about a lot of things, but if you are a creative or want to be more creative, you're going to get some cool insights here. We talk about faith in this podcast and a little bit of a different lens than perhaps you've heard before. And also, the theme throughout a lot of it is also we discuss mental health which is such an important topic for all of us, either personally or within our families and friends. We touch on that, and I don't want you to miss it. So I can't wait for you to meet Julian. His sequel to The Memory Index is called The Recall Paradox, and that publishes in 2023. So a big year ahead for him, and now let's meet him. He's here for episode 50. Here, everyone, is Julian Vaca. Julian, welcome to the podcast. It's great having you here. Thanks for having me, Darren. So Julian, um, you are you heard my introduction, right? You're many things. Yeah. Um, but first, what is there about Nashville, Tennessee? I mean, everyone is moving to Nashville, it seems. What what's going on down there? Yeah, it's definitely uh, you know a very vibrant and um, creative town. And I think for the longest time, you know, uh, th- there's been this stereotype that Nashville is country music. Right. Um, and that's certainly the case, you know, um, but, you know, there's with our proximity to Atlanta, which has, you know, a huge film scene um, and, and, you know, our proximity to the, you know, the Great Smokies. I mean, there's just there's so much within driving distance to do um, and, and it creates a lot of opportunities for uh, creators to create outside of just, you know, the. Uh, the country music scene. Um, but I've actually been in Nashville for, for years and years and years. Just real quick, my story is I'm a Long Beach, California native. And when I was about 12 or 13 years old, my parents were approached by some friends who asked them if they'd be interested in taking over this ministry in rural Tennessee. Uh, and basically, the, the the ministry was taking in boys between the ages of six, seven, eight years old, all the way up to seventeen, and um, it was kind of like this, um, you know, this this place where these these boys would go if they were having problems at home, if they were having, you know, yeah. just issues with their parents or, or whatever the case may be. And my parents were looking actually for an excuse to get out of Southern California. My dad worked in L.A. as a sound engineer for years and years and years, and and the the grind was starting to wear on him um 
And so all, you know, fast forward, you know, a few months after that initial conversation and we're packing up two U-Hauls and, and driving across the country to, to Tennessee. Wow. And so now this was in, you know, early 2000, we did that for about a year and my parents to their credit, they had this, you know, look in the mirror moment where they realized, wow, you know, we're spending more time with these boys than we are with our own kids. We should probably pivot. And, you know, rather than move back to California, my dad found work in Nashville at doing what he was doing in Los Angeles. And, you know, the rest is history. We've been here ever since. And so yeah. your, your faith then, did it start from an early age? In other words, are you, are you a Christian because of how you were raised or is your story a little bit different? It, you know, that my parents did a really good job of, of laying the foundation down for me and my sisters. And, you know, I think like everyone, you know, we have to come to that personal sort of relationship with Jesus in, on an individual personal level. And so while my parents did a, a wonderful job, again, of, of, you know, setting the example and, and laying the foundation and, and you know, uh, we were always really involved with our local church. It wasn't until I graduated from high school, moved back out to California for a few years, um, you know, to kind of find myself as one does. Um, it wasn't until that season that um, I started to, you know, unpack, you know, my own mess. And, and it's, it's, as you know, it's not a, it's not a destination. It's, it's a journey. Yeah, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the example that my parents set. My, you know, my parents were, it, it was so cool. It, it, my sisters and I would often, you know, stumble into the room and, and, and find them, you know, praying or reading their Bible or, you know, it, it was something that they lived out. It wasn't mm -hmm. just, they would send us to Sunday school on Sundays. Um, you know, so all that to say, my journey, uh, my faith journey became very personal for me once I left the nest. Um, I recognized and, you know, even am recognizing this, recognizing this for my own kids, um, that we as parents, my parents had that responsibility um, to lay the foundation to, um, you know, to plant those seeds. But um, it's very much a participation thing where we have to kind of, you know, go on that journey for ourselves. And that's well, my story. For That's a great point. I don't know what you think, but uh, that, that struggle with faith when, mm. when you're younger, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. No. And I think that's what maybe, maybe I'd love your view. Is that what God expects of us to struggle just yeah. a bit? Yeah, no, I think so for sure. Um, and you know, we, how else are we going to, you know, um, how, how else are we going to, you know, be able to sort of make our relationship with Jesus real? Um, if we're not wrestling, if we're not, you know, doubting in a healthy way, right. but I think the key is to continue to flee to Jesus, run back to him. Um, and, there's just so many things that I've learned over the years. You know, I, I think I, I used to compartmentalize my prayer life and think that, you know, I'm only communing with Jesus. I'm only praying with the father when I'm on my knees and my head's bowed, my eyes are closed. Um, but it's an ongoing dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you know, it's this ongoing thing day to day. Um, and so all that to say, you know, to your initial question, Darren, yes, I think, God invites us to doubt and to wrestle and to process. Um, it's, it's how our faith grows stronger. Great points. 
Great. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. First, though, uh, you heard my introduction of you. Um, I'm calling yeah. you this umbrella term of a creator, right? You, uh-huh. you are an actor, you're a writer, you're now a brand new author of the Memory Index, which we'll dive mm-hmm. into. But how would you describe yourself? Um, how do you think of yourself? Yeah, um, I think that's a, a really good question because, um, you know, uh, uh, certainly in this the social media branding age where you have to be intentional with how you position yourself in the market. Um, and so I, I think I, I would say, first and foremost, I'm an author. Um, and I and I also love to to scratch the acting itches from time to time. Um, I, I like to you know dabble behind the camera as well. Um, but first and foremost, uh, I'm a creative writer. I'm an author, um, and and that started in in high school. So I mentioned earlier, you know, leaving Southern California, leaving my bubble, and you know, coming into <laughs> a completely new environment. Oh, I can't um, imagine. I cannot yeah. imagine. <laughs> Well, and one of the ways that I processed all of my insecurities in this new world was through through storytelling. And so my dad gave me his home camera. It was this mini DV camera and me and my sisters made home videos. And that was like That's a light bulb cool. moment. And um, so I, I, I thought for the longest time I wanted to pursue filmmaking full time. But what I quickly discovered was that filmmaking relies on so many different people, so many different roles, but with creative writing, with novel writing, it's just you on a blank page. And so about halfway through college, I really started to you know, uh, put in a lot of work and, and you know, focus on this one novel. I, was just, I would just chip away at it, chip away at it. Then I graduated from college, took a, you know, a, a sales job just to sort of help pay the nice. bills. You nice, know. Yeah. Um, but I always had this novel that I was tinkering with. Um, and so a couple of years into, you know, into working at this job, my wife just looked at me and said, you're unhappy. We don't have any kids. Um, we have four now. So this was BC before children, like my mom likes to say. Um, so she said, why don't you just quit go work part-time at a bookstore and focus on your books. Oh my God. And so I did that and self-published for a few years um, and then as our family started to grow, I ended up pivoting and taking a creative copywriting job, um, at, you know, at a nonprofit, but then randomly before the start of COVID, a friend of mine, this was in January, 2020, she got hired at a, a Harper Collins imprint. And she said, we need to blow the dust off of one of your old manuscripts and get it in front of some of the acquisition people here. Nice. And so long story short, um, you know, we, she facilitated an email intro with one of the acquisition editors and that got the conversation going. And a couple of months ago, my, my debut, you know, young adult novel published and, and, and here we are. It's, it's a pretty crazy story. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that. I love that. What, what did you, what did you learn through that entire process? There are many people mm-hmm. listening who are, you know, have side gigs or side hustles. They're wondering, should I, should I pursue this? I know it's yeah. not all it's not all glamour. My goodness, quite the opposite. But any any insights you learned through this whole process? A hundred percent. You know, it's to your point of it not being, you know, always glamorous. I think the 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 through line for you know all people who are looking to you know pursue something you know creative is is discipline. Um, and certainly with with novel writing, I mean, you're 
you're looking at, uh, you know, a benchmark of 70, 80, 90, sometimes even a hundred thousand words. Oh my gosh. Um, so that's a lot, that's a lot of writing. And so, yeah. um, and, and, and it, when I had that stint in self-publishing, I'm the one creating my deadlines. And so I have to stay on top of myself with getting my pages and my words done. Um, and so I, working that discipline muscle, it, I think is critical to, um, to a creator's success. Um, and I think that even extends beyond um, if, if you're trying to start, a, you know, a small business, if you're trying, whatever the, whatever your pursuit is, um, having that discipline, fostering that discipline day in and day out is so critical in my opinion. So I'm going to take that. I think that's, that's a wonderful aha for everyone, regardless of your vocation or interest, like mm -hmm. Julian just said, it's about the discipline and the consistency every day. If you're, if you want to write, you just need to write, right, Julian? Yeah. I mean, it's easier yeah. said than done. Uh -huh. A hundred percent. And I'll piggyback off that and say, um, I, I like to tell people as, as a writer, I'm a reader first. Uh -huh. And so discipline is that first step of putting in the work. Um, but then you also have to be consuming and ingesting, you know, uh, fiction. If you, if you're, we'll just take my, my example as a, as a fiction writer, what am I doing? If I'm not also reading fiction, if I'm not also consuming, uh, novels, um, because again, yeah. writers, writers are readers first. So be intentional with what you're consuming and how, and how you're, you know, spending your time. That's good. There's a lot there. Um, I'm, I'm a child of the eighties and your, your novel takes place in al alternate 1987. So I have to tell you, I'm, I'm looking at your age. I don't know how old you are, but you're not as old as I am. <laughs> I need you to land on the eighties. I know you have the stranger yeah. things and kudos to yeah. you. Cause I, I think you nailed it. How did you land on mm -hmm. the eighties? So I think the the biggest thing for me was I mean in in, in the eighties we, we definitely have as a, as a culture we we have this affinity for that decade and we right. have for for a while now um, and some of my greatest or my favorite I should say some of my favorite uh, movies came out of that decade um, but for me it was less about having this story feel gimmicky and capitalizing on the you know on, on that decade and more about the the main conflict in the story of the memory index which is this sort of enigmatic plague that is tormenting humanity and is accelerating uh memory loss for everyone and as i started to sort of untangle all the implications of that kind of you know that kind of conflict it occurred to me early on gosh this doesn't work in 2022 where really? we're smart where smartphones are ubiquitous and and you know we we have all of this technology and um it, it's almost like that kind of conflict you know there, there's it's just it's a it's a it's a lot trickier to to, to stick that landing but in the 80s where we're still in this sort of analog technology world yes we were um, that's a very kind of terrifying uh, idea um, and so that was sort of the beginning of the decision to set the memory index in, in a reimagined eighties. Um, and so, and then of course, on top of that, there's something very decidedly atmospheric about that decade. Um, you just, you know, the, the neon lights, the music, um, the pop culture, it's very, very atmospheric and I love setting. And so, you know, as I started making that list of, you know, reasons why this story just has to be, you know, set in that decade, it just made sense. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you did it. I was reading one of the reviews of your book on Amazon and here's what someone wrote. 
And I think it's a, the ultimate compliment. Total Recall meets Riverdale. Breakfast Club meets Severance. The Goonies meets The Matrix. Well, to me, that sums it up. I think you nailed it, don't you think? I mean, that's that's really, really, really good company to be in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, that's incredibly flattering, and and that's definitely what you know what I was going for. And you know, one of the other things that I love about good story and what I set set out to to accomplish with with the Memory Index is having. Uh, a cast of characters, having a band of characters, you know, that yeah. sort of stand by me um, kind of motif where you have a quartet or, or more of characters that are sort of pitted against the world. Um, I think there's just something that in all of us that loves that kind of, that craves reading those kinds of stories that, that are centered around a community um, oh, and truth. friends. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? So in, in the yeah. book, you also have a QR code where you can go to your playlist for all the for this. Yeah. And I, I went on Apple last night, looked at your music. Stand By Me, as you know, is one of the selections. The selections are are fantastic. Mike and the Mechanics? Yeah. Are you kidding, are you kidding yeah. me? I, that's fantastic. <laughs> how, how'd, you, how'd, how'd you land on those selections? So my, so growing up, uh, so actually, I, you know, earlier you mentioned my age, I was actually born in 1987. And so, you know, even <laughs> though I was a child of the nineties, I consumed a ton of, uh, media from the eighties. My dad at an early age was showing me and my sisters all kinds of in, incredible movies. And we were listening to, you know, all kinds of awesome music. I mean, we didn't have iTunes at the time. We didn't have Apple music or Spotify. Right. And so my dad had this insane library of, of, of CDs, compact discs. Um, isn't it crazy to think that those are, are sort of, you know, being phased out now? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but so, you know, growing up, I was, you know, watching all of those movies, you know, listening. Interestingly, when I think back on my childhood um, and I think about moments of inspiration, it was watching music videos with my dad. My dad had laser discs of awesome. like Tears for Tears for Fears, yeah. um, Michael Jackson, you know, all kinds of really fun, you know, you know, music videos, and 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 so I would consume that. And so my, as I think back on my own childhood and this whole idea of memories, um, so much of my memories are steeped in music videos and music in general. And so it was important to me to have a playlist accompany the book so that the reader could have that sort of you know, experience. Mm. Um, because that's the fun thing about the eighties for the older readers, it's going to feel nostalgic. And for the younger readers, it's going to feel exciting and fresh. Um, so, and the music I think just elevates that, that entire experience. Yeah, it sure does. Um, so everyone, the book is the memory index and check it out on Apple, Apple, um, on iTunes, check out that playlist. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Whether, whether you're a child of the 80s like me or you're not, you're gonna. It's fantastic selections, and the book is unreal. But by the way, this. But you brought it up. These are. It's a story. Mm. The story is just a vehicle to. I think I've heard you heard you say it, or maybe write oh, it. Oh yes. But you're unpacking these human themes. That as long as a story is there, you can explore these human themes. And tell us a little bit more about that as a creative writer. And then I got some follow ups mm. on that. Yeah, some of the best sci-fi, in my opinion. Uh, like I think about Ender's Game, that was like one of those books that I read, Orson Scott Card, where um, they almost smuggle in, you know, these really, really, you know, compelling, you know, themes that, of, you know, whether it's grief or trauma or whatever, that resonate with readers. 
but that the vehicle is is science fiction is 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 the fantastical um and that's what i think is so beautiful beautiful about the genre of sci-fi um <clears throat> so you know even though the memory index has a high concept has these high stakes certainly in the third act um at the end of the day i what i what i'm most interested in is writing compelling characters yeah. um and you know freya izquierdo the main character is first generation mexican-american and and so am i and so a lot of what i navigated as a teen in the south i i tried to incorporate into freya's experience and and in the story at the outset freya is in long beach and then, of course, the bulk of the story takes place in the fictional town of Foxtail, Tennessee. And so she has to uh, go to this academy. And, and so anyway, I think writers, you know, are afforded a really, really um, exciting opportunity when writing because it's a vehicle for process for processing our own, you know, mental health journey, our own experience, our own grief story on the page. Let me follow up on that. Um, yeah. we, I've heard you on a podcast recently. In fact, you were talking about about how we all can be creative. And and I, I find myself pushing back on that a little bit as you were talking mm. about it. I thought, man, really, can we all be creative? You mm. talked about having this, this feeling when you see a blank sheet of paper and how invigorating, that's the word. You said it's invigorating to see a blank sheet of paper or to see that cursor flashing and blinking. And that gives you excitement and inspiration. Uh, Julian, that gives me, that gives me fear. That gives me apprehension and anxiety. So unpack that for me, will you? Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because two nights ago, my wife and I were watching a show and, um, I can't remember if it was in the show or if it was on in a commercial and a character. Oh no, no, no. It was in a movie. It, it, it was this movie called, it's this Christmas rom-com. It's, it's so <laughs> silly, but it's called, um, it's called love hard. It's about this LA writer who moves to, uh, to, you know, upstate New York. Um, and, and, and at the end of the book or at the end of the movie, rather, uh, she's, she's trying to write this article about her experience and she just can't crack it. She has writer's block and she's just staring at the, at the blank page. And I turned to my wife, and I said, gosh, there's nothing quite like that, that feeling of, you know, and she looked at me and she goes, you're crazy. Yeah, that's, that's intimidating. That's terrifying. Um, and so, but I think, you know, regardless of the medium, whether it's the blank page, whether it's a blank canvas, um, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, I think there is something inherently exciting about the unknown for me. And I, and, you know, I recognize that that's not the case for everyone. Um, some people, some writers need to outline their story top to bottom before they can look at that blank blank page and know where they're going. Um, but I do think that um, creativity, uh, you know, um, having a blank page is a breeding ground for creativity. And, and I'll tie this, sorry, I know I'm rambling, but no, you the, go. I had a I had another thought recently about, um, I was talking with a friend who had just read this book called uh, Stolen Focus. And he was talking about how in the social media, smartphone streaming age, we've forgotten how to let our minds wander. We've forgotten how to be bored. Um, and <laughs> I just I just thought that that was so profound. I love that. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, all, all just sort of tying that back in, I think, I'm able to, I'm empowered to let my 
my mind wander and to let myself to let my creativity just you know blossom when I'm staring at a, at a blank page. Um, and so, you know, for for other people, the, the medium might be different, but again, I think inherently in all of us, there's this there's this desire to create. You know, again, I've uh, I've heard you say or write. Uh, uh, you talk about these characters. This uh, instead of the outline, which would be my style, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Rima beat that into me have an outline have an outline yeah. this yeah. discovery writing that you have and mm-hmm. you you've said i'm just as eager as the characters in my hold on let me get this right hold on mm-hmm. this is the problem of getting old speaking in the 80s <laughs> yeah here we go i'm just as eager as the characters in my novel to see what's going to happen next so are you telling me then that that's part of how like the memory index you're, you were looking at your own experience, but you were just free-flowing this? I've got to know. So, well, there's a, there's, there's a, Neil Gaiman says this, and, and I've, stole, I've stolen this from him. Um, but basically, he says, when you're writing, that the second draft is where the writer goes back and pretends like he or she knew what they were doing all along. So in that first draft of discovery writing, where I'm fumbling along with the characters and, 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 and discovering and learning and experiencing what they're experiencing, even though it may feel a little haphazard and you know a little chaotic, the, the beautiful thing about writing is there's a second, third, fourth, et cetera, draft that's forthcoming where I can go back and pretend like I knew what I was doing all along. <laughs> and so in, in a lot of ways, that first draft uh, it's semantics because I, I feel like in a lot of ways that first draft just becomes an outline of sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in that case, what I'm really just doing is a really, really long outline exercise. It just looks like a messy first draft, if that makes sense. Yeah. And honestly, honestly, it's a little little refreshing for me because when I'm looking at that blank piece of paper and the and the cursor is going, I find myself thinking about an outline just limits me. I mean, it yeah. helps me, but also it limits me. I think I'm just repeating back what you just said. Yeah, no, no, I, I that's I have discovered that for myself. I think, you know, if I focus too much on the front end on creating these story beats, um, then I feel like it sucks the fun out of it because when I'm actually setting out to write and discover and and you know be invigorated, um, I almost feel like I'm tethered to this you know map that I've already spent you know hours and hours and hours laboring over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it just feels like it kind of takes the, the fun and the excitement. Uh, out of it. For all of us, we have all been given certain strengths and talents, uh, God-given strengths and talents. And when we're we're in it, we can kind of feel it. We lose track of time. We're in the zone. But we're all different, each and every one of us. Um, and I was reading uh, about you. 2020 was an incredible year for all of us. But you wrote, that, uh, you wrote about writing and mental health, which is such mm. an important topic, and how creativity was your biggest enemy. What was 2020 like for you, Julian? And and yeah. what have you learned that that we can we can learn from you? Yeah. So, um, in in when the pandemic hit, um, my nine to five and and my wife's nine to five um, allowed for us to be able to work remote. And I recognize that that wasn't everyone's you know story. That wasn't everyone's situation. We were definitely fortunate enough that we could pivot and and work remote. Um, however, you know, working in close proximity with, um, with your spouse creates a lot of, you know, awkward, you know, clunky, um, at times difficult scenarios. Right. Um, and so I had all kinds of unchecked, 
um, insecurities and anxieties that I had just sort of been punting down the field year after year, just not dealing with them, not unpacking them, but being forced in close proximity with my wife in 2020, um, I, I, I was, I had no other choice, but to reckon with all of these things that I, that I had put off confronting. And so, um, you know, went to individual therapy, which was incredibly, incredibly uh, restorative and, and transformative for both myself individually and, and my marriage. And what I identified was that um, a lot of my insecurities, a lot of my anxieties were stemming from intrusive thoughts. And so in other words, um, my, my mind would spin up these fake scenarios and I would latch onto them mm. and, and, and convince myself that they were reality. And as a result of that, I would start to resent my wife. I would start to shut down. I would start to, I mean, it would manifest in so many different types of behaviors. And so I basically, you know, had to confront that and, and I had to give that up to God so that he could allow me to sort of reclaim my creativity, if you will. Oh, yeah. um, because I mean, it, uh, you know, giving yourself over to those intrusive thoughts when I was doing that, that was basically like the creative side of my brain being warped and, and, and sort of being used for, for bad, not good. Um, and so in that, yeah, in that blog, that, that article that you reference, um, I talk about this idea of sort of reclaiming, um, you know, my creativity, because I'm a firm believer that as Christians, that's one of the ways that we can worship the creator is by creating. Um, so mm -hmm. that, that was 2020 and, and it's, and, and beyond it's still, it's still, I'm still working through stuff, but, um, I'm happy to report that, you know, through God's grace and through lots of hard work, um, you know, I've been able to, you know, uh, make a lot of progress in that recovery journey. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Very vulnerable. And, and it's yeah. uh, a lot of people, I think most people, do I dare say all people, <laughs> we all have this, uh, these negative self-thoughts and becomes this loop, this narrative yeah. that just impacts our mind the way we think. And I think it prevents us from chasing down some pretty big goals. There's always something, a mm -hmm. little voice that says, yeah, you really can't, or you shouldn't. Um, you're and I should ask you, right. what have you learned about all this? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. In, in fact, a few years ago, I uh, was a part of this after-school creative writing program that went into middle schools and high schools all across Nashville, and we taught different forms of creative writing. And one of the first things that we taught our students, Darren, was the importance of silencing our inner critic. Um, because, you know, that, that inner critic lives inside all of us and is always telling us that we're inadequate or that we're not good enough. Right. Um, and it's just interesting. Like here I am, you know, 35 years old, you know, pr still working through all this and, you know, just being afforded the, the, the incredible honor and opportunity to be able to encourage young budding writers with this as well. Um, because it's something that touches all of us that, that it inner is. critic, um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's very important to to recognize that to take the steps to silence that critic. Yeah, and how how would you? Uh, by the way, first off, I'm gonna I'm gonna affirm that for everyone listening, everyone you're thinking of right now, I don't care who they are, they all have that that voice, that inner critic. Mm -hmm. Even though you may think they've got it all dialed in, they don't. They're working through things. Everyone. How would we? What would be a, a couple steps, Julian, that someone could take to to help silence that inner critic? 
What do you think? I think the first thing for me is, is my, is my community. Um, and, and I'm not talking necessarily about my family because my family, I mean, they're my biggest cheerleaders. Um, you know, but beyond that, um, you know, whether it's a, you know, a writer's group, whether it's a, a discipleship group at church, whatever the case, um, we're stronger in numbers. And I think that, um, you know, once you start to allow yourself to be open and vulnerable with others and you start to hear their stories, you start to recognize that we're all in this together. Um, and so I think silencing the inner critic, one of, one of the first real practical steps someone can take is prioritizing community, um, surrounding yourself with, you know, um, not just people that are like-minded because it's good to be challenged. What we don't want is to live in echo chambers, right. um, but definitely find that community and lean into them. Um, and then, you know, the second thing is just honestly patience. It gets, it's not that it gets easier over time because my inner critic has now manifested in imposter syndrome as a published writer. Like I, I thought, oh man, <laughs> if I ever, if I ever, sign a traditional book deal, that'll be the I've made it moment, even if the book tanks. And surely by then I'll have confidence and I'll feel like, and it's no, the inner I'm critic is just, yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's, it's just taken a different shape, a different form now. And it's imposter syndrome. So it's not that it gets easier per se, but I think you get um, more equipped and you get more comfortable yeah. using the, the tools that are at your disposal. Um, so I think you know, uh, I hate saying fake it till you make it, but there is something to trusting the process and yeah. just knowing like if I'm putting in the work and I'm fostering discipline, um, you know, that, that voice will get quieter and quieter and mm -hmm. quieter. Oh, there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah. What I heard in what you were saying there is stay in the fight, stay consistent mm -hmm. by, le by learning how to manage what's happening in your mind and working through it. That's the point. Instead of becoming paralyzed by it, just learn how to manage it and to keep yeah. working through it. And like you said, it could now manifest into something else like imposter syndrome, recognize it, keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, and I think that's, I think that's real quick. I think that's so important. Um, we, we need to recognize it. We ought not to uh, compartmentalize it or, or suppress it. Or shame. Um, because then you don't have shame you, on it. Exactly. Exactly. And then it'll just fester and just, you know, um, continue to impact us in negative ways. Sorry. Yeah. No, good. Hey, um, so I'm, I follow you on Instagram. Great follow. And uh, so I, I, how should we then follow you and all the cool projects and all the things that you're working on? Where should we go? Uh, definitely Instagram is, is a great place. That's the tool that I have found uh, to be, um, you know, the, the easiest for me to use. It's, I guess, you know, Instagram for sure, Twitter, I'm on Twitter. Um, and then, I, I have a website. You can reach out to me through my website, which is actually how we connected, Darren. It is. Um, and in 2023, I'm going to start sending out uh, a newsletter with writing excerpts, writing tips. Um, I'll be able to plug podcast appearances like this one. Um, so definitely Instagram, Twitter, and check out my website at julianraybaca.com. So outside of what we've talked about so far, what else is bringing you a lot of joy and purpose right now in your life? We've covered a lot of ground, but anything else going yeah. on right now that you're particularly excited about going into this new year? Yeah. So the the Memory Index, its sequel publishes uh, April 11, 2023. All so right. in January, I'll probably start switching gears into you know marketing and publicity mode for that book. 
Um, so I'm really excited about the release and, and Memory Index is a duology, so that'll complete the story. Um, and then in addition to that, I'm really excited. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a deeply, deeply personal uh, young adult coming of age contemporary novel about this, um, this first generation uh, Mexican-American girl who um, is just, she has this transcendent singing voice and her parents who are both immigrants are small business owners. And, and the main character in, in this book, she develops a psychological condition after a real traumatic event called boys confrontation. And it's where you have real crippling anxiety um, that's sort of on, that's brought upon by the sound of your own voice. And so oh she gives gosh. up singing. She, yeah, she gives up singing, decides to just rewrite plans for her future and just take over her parents' uh, business. And in doing so, she recognizes that she would be fulfilling a dream that's generations in the making. Um, but then, of course, at the start of the novel, um, she's, she comes out of hiding and, and sings for her friend's birthday party. The, the, the clip goes viral on, on TikTok, on social media. And then suddenly the, the book's version of American Idol is pursuing her to try out for this, this show because they're Here just so taken with her voice. Yeah. And so now she has to navigate, do I, you know, what do I do with this? Um, and so it's kind of deconstructing the American dream and this idea of young people needing to go to college, which I'm a big, you know, proponent for college. I went to, to college, I have a degree, um, but just sort of, you know, rethinking, you know, all of the stuff that we foist on young people. Um, so there's a lot there that I'm still, you know, uh, working on the manuscript, but I'm excited about, about that story. I love it. I love it. By the way, memory index and then the sequel to that, which is called the recall the, the paradox. Re the recall paradox. Any any chances that this we might see this in the big screen or on, on Netflix, HBO, you name it? That's definitely the plan. And um, at the risk of jinxing it, I'll just uh -oh. say um, I've, I've got a, a friend who, who lives in, in L.A. and we've been meeting over Zoom. He read the book. He loved it. He saw the, the promise in, in, in taking it to the small screen. And so we've just been meeting for a few months now on Zoom. And we're putting together a pitch deck with the hope of in 2023 uh, potentially shopping it around. So I love it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I love it. Well, if you need if you need some 55 year old child of the 80s to be an extra, <laughs> will you let me know? I'm there. All right. You'll be the first phone call I make, Darren. <laughs> hey, uh, I, the podcast is I Dare You. Uh, everyone listening has some big goals for their life. You are an old soul, a perfect book, uh, alternate 1987 reality. You're doing a lot of cool things in your life. You've learned a lot as well. What advice do you have for someone who may be thinking about tackling a big goal in their life? What do you think? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, not being afraid of risk taking, and I hope that doesn't sound like a cop out answer, but as I look back on on my own life, um, you know, I and I and I I recognize that not everybody is in a position to quit their nine to five. Like that was a very unique situation. And so I hope I don't sound entitled when I say that it was a unique situation for us, but in, for my story, that not being afraid to take a rest risk moment was quitting my nine to five and working part-time at a bookstore so that I could spend a season working on refining my craft. Um, so, you know, the more opportunities that you can take to actually take some risk um, I, I think it's huge. I think it's it's so huge. It's so important. 
um, obviously within the confines of, of reason. Um, I, I hope people don't hear me saying, you know, go be reckless. Um, but certainly I think not being afraid of taking a risk is, is a starting point. It's great advice and a follow-up. How about someone who may be um, younger? They don't need to be younger, but in this in my mind, someone who may be, mm. you know, have just left home, they're in their 20s, and yeah. they are rest- they're wrestling right now with their faith. What would you say to mm. them? Uh, yeah, don't, don't be afraid to continue wrestling. Don't be afraid uh, to continue processing. I think right now, you know, this idea of deconstructing one's faith is, is very much in vogue. A lot of people are talking about it. We're, we're reading about and seeing about a lot of people who are, are actually leaving the faith and deconstructing it. But I think what's important in that is, um, you know, we, we, we have this tendency to make the Bible and to, and to think about, um, you know, scripture as being hyper individualistic um, when it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's not about us really. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're just fortunate as Christians to be caught up along in Christ's story of redemption and, and healing and restoration. And I think, um, young people listening, as you begin to grow and mature, there's something um, really beautiful about being able to recognize that the universe doesn't revolve around us. It it, it really doesn't. And as as you can sort of start to let go of that and recognize that it's not all about us, it's not all about you. um, I think there's a, I think that's a starting point in that faith journey of making your faith far more personal than maybe it ever has been. I'm going to leave it right there. Great advice. <laughs> great challenge. Uh, thank you so much for being part of the podcast, Julian. It was wonderful to meet you, and uh, I wish you all the success. Thanks again for being here. Thanks, Darren. I really appreciate it. This has been an absolute delight. Okay, that was Julian Vaca. I hope you enjoyed getting to know him and, and learning more about his background and where he's taking things. What a memorable interview, and I just loved his thoughtful responses and his cool insights how he can silence that inner critic, and his I Dare You challenge is perfect. So now, follow his work. Again, the book is called The Memory Index. Sequel is coming this year called The Recall Paradox. Let's watch for that. So now that you listened, who will you share this episode with? I invite you to do that. Also, subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at I Dare You Pod. Also, do me a favor. Uh, screenshot this episode right now and then post it on Instagram and tag me, tag Julian. Let us know what you're biggest takeaway was from this episode. So thank you again for listening to the I Dare You podcast. We just crossed a big milestone, episode 50, and we're just getting warmed up. Next week is episode 51, and what you can expect is another great guest with this community that's listening right along with you, and I appreciate you being here every single week. I'll see you then on the I Dare You podcast.